Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. Then it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls, and it was like, you'll have to give us a ride. You can't fill us, though. He can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. Thoughts were all alone in this empty void. Alright guys, welcome back to Conspiranormal. I'm here, your host, Adam, and... Oh, and me, Rob. Yay. And uh, Luke is... Oh, not oh. here. Yet. Yet. He may yeah. be showing up. <laughs> you never know. He is the wild card, but he does successfully fill in as our mascot. But uh, we do have someone here that uh, is on the line... And yes, I know he was on the last show, but uh, considering we recorded that like over three weeks ago now, uh, and there's been a few things that have happened, so I wanted to get Chris Wolford on to talk about some weirdness that has been going on in the UFO community. And it's kind of like a silly season right now, because as we're approaching the 50th, the 70th anniversary of Roswell, which we are going to be at here in the next few days, we got some weird stuff going on, Chris. So kind of fill us in on what's happening here. We got <laughs> we got mummies and weird documents and all kinds of oh, all kinds all of all kinds of weirdness. Stuff. I mean, it's all coming in threes, really. Yeah, uh, it kind of started with the Robert Bigelow, then it went to which we talked about the, on the last show. Yeah, yeah. Then it went to the fake MJ twelve documents were which were ultra secret. Which ultra secret is like a Canadian or no, excuse me, a British uh, term that they use when they have top secret documents. 
which has a lot of inconsistencies in those documents. Then we had the mummy. And then we have the <laughs> NASA announcement that we found. Uh, I'm sorry to laugh. Like, I'm sorry to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> then we found 10 more planets within our solar system. And then the kicker is we have the 70th anniversary in addition to the 20th, no wait, is it 20? Yeah, 20th anniversary of the movie Contact, which will be July 20th uh, of good 2017. Point. I didn't even think yeah. about that. Yeah, wow. Yeah, which I guess is also a date that they I've been told, which I don't really like dates, but whatever. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, the mummy. I mean, where do we want to begin? I mean, where do you? Well, want to begin? let's let's start with the mummy. So, so what is this? I I have seen this all over Facebook. Um, this white mummy that to me just looks fake as hell. But as you said that this, you, you were one of the first to tell me about it. I'd already seen something about it, but you kind of went a little bit more in depth on it. Uh, Apparently this is, you described this as Roswell slides 2.0. Yes. um, Because it's got some of the same players involved, namely Hami Musan, who obviously does not have the, the best track record, even though people are trying to talk him up like, mm, I don't know, they're trying to talk him up like he has done nothing wrong and that he's just some unwilling participant in all these fakeries and hoaxes left and right and through all the years. I don't know, but he is involved. He is the only journalist on the scene of these three mummies down in Peru. It is, to the best of my knowledge, they are being tested right now for the DNA. They did radiocarbon dating on all three. Um, The tests have not come back, with the one exception of the main mummy that everybody's been seeing on the Gaia uh, stuff on Facebook. That test has come back. It's come back as a female and so far, and this is not. Listen, I, I'm not. I'm not saying it's real. I'm saying it's probably a hoax, a very well perpetrated hoax. Um, but these people who are associated with it are saying the scientific community that they have reached out to and have gone to test through have said that the, whatever this is is not 100% human, and that it's humanoid. And that's their wording, not mine. So, you know, and I know there's three mummies, uh, two adults and one child-like one. I did, I don't know if you saw this, Adam, when they did the, uh, on the guy TV thing on Facebook, where they they showed if they had, uh, if they moved the mummy at the upright position, it'd be uh, like, four or five feet tall, maybe four feet tall. I can't remember. But the the animation they used, it was a gray alien. I'm like, are you trying to lead everybody down that path already? (laughs) (laughs) Are you serious? Yeah. But, yeah, where to begin? I mean, I personally have had an orthopedic surgeon take a look at some of these photos. I tried to get as many uh, photos that I could of the bone structure and the orthopedic surgeon that I talked to said looked human. Uh, there was no abnorm- abnormalities that he could see other than 
um, where the tailbone area is was a little bit more elongated than a human, a typical human. But he says that could happen in a human being. It's not common, but it could happen. Um, I asked him about the finger, though, the three fingers in particular. He felt that it looked like the reason why they plastered it all white is to hide the fact that they hid the bones or they put more bones in than what really was mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. So that's leaning towards hoax. But again, these people down in Peru are doing their work. And who are we to say whatever? I mean, Kurt Collins is already, uh, I contacted him with the whole Roswell slides angle. And he thought that was very poignant. And actually he's pretty disgusted with uh, the fact that again, Hami Musan yet again, is a part of this and that we're even giving this even the slightest uh, look at all. He's just, he's like, Chris, just run away as far as you can. But I said, I can't, I like a train wreck. But now I have, I have seen, um, I, I of course have seen some of the video of it and I have seen some other things online about it. A lot of people are making a point that they're not bringing any outside Exactly. Um, no researchers scientists. in to look at yeah. it. It's just all this kind of insular, isolated group. And mm-hmm. I showed the picture to Rob, and uh, I like to Rob's impressions of what you thought this thing was. Oh, me? Yeah. The uh, I've been calling it the plaster of Paris monster. <laughs> <laughs> Can we paint it? <laughs> <laughs> maybe paint it. Maybe paint it rainbow color for Pride Week or something. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I, I, I it just it just kind of looks like it could be a real mummy, but like they put the 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 three fingered hands on it to make it look weird. Exactly, and the three toes. Yeah, you know, here's the thing. For me, and I, I did ask Kurt Collins about this because I felt that he was the leading person during the whole Roswell slides. Uh, he worked with that group to debunk it. I asked him, isn't it curious that this is, if this is a hoax, that there was a lot of money behind this. And that, yeah, they're trying to make money by you to buy the guy at TV, which really formerly was Guy M, the people who you can do your yoga exercises to. That's the same group. Um, yeah, you would have to pay to see this mummy and then see the progression of all the tests. And yeah, there's money to be had there and you will always find the gullible who will definitely pay money for that. But I don't think it's going to make tens of millions or even hundreds of thousands of dollars because it's a pretty niche market. So my point to him was, it is to me, and it's just to me, that whoever put this together, if it is a hoax, which I do feel it is, they put a lot of money behind this because they went and got a bunch of people. Um, there is a person who's involved who I don't know, Adam, if you're aware of Earth Mystery News on Facebook. Or actually, they have a website, too. Does it sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Sid, uh, Sid, I can't remember his last name right now, but I think it's Sid Goldberg. He's a part of this because now he's part of Gaia TV. And he is the one that's telling me that there are all these scientists involved and they sent all the DNA to five different labs throughout the, uh, the world and that some of them have come back and some of them haven't. 
Um, I also find it very interesting that Jay Widener is um, really part of this. Yes, he huh. is. Which I need to ask Jay Dyer what he thinks, even though he did a series with Jay Widener on Guy TV talking about his esoteric Hollywood um, book. Yeah. So that is interesting. I wonder what Richard Dolan thinks because his uh, series of false stuff is also on Gaia TV. So I don't know. I mean, one would have to wonder why, who is putting so much money behind a hoax? Is it to make money? That just doesn't sit right with me. Even all other UFO researchers I've talked to said, Chris, just keep your eye on the ball with the money. Even with the Roswell slides, I couldn't buy that because it didn't make that. I mean, it did make money, but not as much as people thought it did. So to me, there's something not right with that. And am I saying it's some kind of uh, PSYOP or some kind of intelligence operation? No, but I would like to know more about the people who, the scientific people, the anthropologists or the archaeologists who are, in, who are down there doing this work, supposedly. I want to know more of their backgrounds, and we just we don't have that information. We only have one Russian scientist's name. That's it. I, I guess I could ask Sid to give some names, but I don't want to be a jerk about it. But that's where we stand with the mummy stuff. I mean, right now yeah. we're just waiting. I also find it funny that uh, the movie The Mummy is coming out this uh, this summer. Just just thought I yeah I just thought I would point that out and then all of a sudden like mummies are on are on everyone's mind and they pull out a mummy from the from Peru I I don't know just I I look at stuff like that and I think there's something to that there's some kind of either that they realize that okay everybody's thinking of mummies because of a big summer blockbuster hit. And so they pull it out. Are there some kind of like advertising thing going on as well? Um, let's turn over to the majestic, the new majestic twelve documents, which apparently, um, as I understand, I have not read them. I don't really have time <laughs> to, to to read these. Which I believe majestic twelve was a whole pack of lies anyway. Um, but, but again, now see, this is Adam. This is the sure. devil's advocate, and this is I agree with Richard Dolan on this point. There's there's the original MJ12 documents that were released, which clearly are bogus, and then you have the like six thousand pages of MJ12 documents that came from or came to the Wood, uh, the two Woods uh, um, uh, family members. And those are much more interesting. And again, if you are doing that much work to fool the UFO research community, there's a reason behind that. And you have to have money to do so because you would have to know how to put all that wording together. You can't just have somebody who just says, I'm going to hoax something and just throw it together. It doesn't work that way. So again, the, the MJ-12 documents that the woods deal with and even not the Shandira, Jamie Shandira or uh, Stanton Freeman, MJ 12 documents, those ones. Yeah, definitely are hoax. But the other ones that the wood uh, family, I can't remember Ryan Wood um, and Bob Wood, I believe his name is those documents 
there's some nuggets in there that are pretty interesting. I mean, I, I don't want, I know you, you wanted to talk about this, but like the Psalm 101, I know that's a hot topic with UFO researchers. A lot of people think it's crap, but when you see different supposed crashes that happen, especially in recent memory, basically what Psalm 101 had stated, and that was in part of the, the whole MJ-12 documents, they had stated that if they needed to, they would cut the power to whatever town that the crash happened near or on. And that happened in 1992 on Long Island where something crashed near the Livermore Labs and they cut the power. And I, I don't know what crashed there, but whatever it did, they definitely cut the power for a couple hours. So I find that intriguing. But yeah, these these latest documents... I, you know, again, I can only tell you what I've been told, that there's a lot of things that are going to be muddying the waters for yeah. whatever. And I honestly think, actually, I know there's a competing group to the, the, the Tom DeLong group that wants to basically muddy as much water as they can. So when... Tom makes his announcement, even if he is at this point now. I don't know. I had said he would, and all indications to me that I've talked to his camp is there's still a green light. Everything's still in motion. It's just he's doing 25 million different things. I have heard that there's two competing groups. There's a Tom DeLong group, and there's yet the unnamed group. And some of the players are on both sides. I know that doesn't make any sense, but that's what has been told to me. And then the proof to me that I'm not being lied to is the person supplied a photo of him at the at a meeting with Tom DeLon. Then also a photo of him with somebody else who um, – I'm not really comfortable saying just yet, but let's just say he had a position of to be in the know. He was a government, former government official. Okay. Uh, not widely known, but you wouldn't know him if you're in the UFOs. You definitely know who he was. And he supplied a photo of that person. And like I said, there's two competing groups and I think they're fighting quote unquote to try to oh, do we, outdo each other and try to get their version of whatever is coming down the pipe of, and I won't say the word disclosure, but definitely a movement or a confirmation. I think but Robert Bigelow, what he'd said is that we're going to get confirmation rather than disclosure. I think that's more in the cards than a disclosure at this point. Yeah. Well, one thing about the majestic, these new MJ-12 documents is the fact that it references things that are derived from works of fiction. Like, for instance, I think there's a uh, an organization in there that was directly from the book The Andromeda Strain Yeah, and some other uh, works of fiction. The big one that uh, Kevin Randall had said that that was – really grossly grossly inaccurate is it's a top secret document supposedly right if the people in the document their names are still redacted but why is it a top secret document you would think that they would be not redacted it would still be 
unredacted thing where all the participants would you be able to see their names, but you don't. They don't list them. They don't say them. That's really odd. Like I said, the beginning, the, the cover sheet, Ultra Top Secret, and again, that's either Canadian or a, uh, a British version of Top Secret. That's not a U.S. version. That's sticking out to him. I'm trying to think. Again, I didn't spend a whole lot of time on that because I just felt it was a distraction. The minute that it came out and the way it was disseminated through Art Bell's person at midnight in the desert. Yeah, Heather Heather Wade Heather Wade was the one that received it. Uh, yeah, I just and then uh, she and, and I'm not saying that the person who gave her the documents isn't real. They probably are, but whatever they got is crap. And, you know, I mean, it really is. It's just crap. I mean, we can't do anything with it. We just, the people who are going to believe are going to believe. And the people who are going to say it's false, know it's false because they can go through and find out that X, Y, and Z is not right or doesn't, that's not the way that they do top secret documents. So, yeah. And, and, And then the other fact is, is it mentions Aztec, which again, uh-huh. I don't know why they wouldn't. You would think they would call it something else, you know? They wouldn't call it old oh, Aztec crash. I don't think. Yeah, that is that is that, that the crash? It was supposedly before Roswell or something. Uh, no, a year later, 1948, supposedly. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's so much stuff going on right now. Probably tomorrow <laughs> we're gonna find out that. Uh, there's chucacabras coming out from Puerto Rico. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, like the, like the chupacabras that look like little gray aliens with, exactly. that are that are green with spikes and claws. <laughs> I'm scared right? to open my Facebook every time because it's like, oh my god, what are we gonna, like? What are we going to have to deal with today? Well, yeah, and then like the whole thing about anonymous saying that. Um, NASA is about to reveal that alien life is is coming. So it's like it seems like there's a real big push this year, and especially now with the with the Roswell 70th anniversary. To yeah, I mean, to, it, 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 like, is this? It, it it just seems like wishful thinking to me, honestly. Well, y- yeah, you, you know, I'm an anti ETH guy. You know where I, know, I come I'm from so, on this. I, 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 I am too. It's just, or I leave a little bit of wiggle room. Sure. But I will say, they, the people who are controlling Tom DeLon, the people who are in this unnamed group, and even with, I would say, Robert Bigelow, they know that they have painted themselves into a corner. They don't want to have this information anymore. They don't want to have to hold on to it. They don't want to have to, because I'll say just like what Richard Dolan says, technology and the internet is making it so that we're going to be on an equal plane level very shortly. And they know this, so they have no choice but to do something. But again, they want to control the narrative. That's what I've stated from the beginning. They want to control the narrative at all costs. So they're going to do it their way. And if they're going to do it this year, they're going to do it this year. If not, they'll wait till next year. Um, This is not the first time we've been – I think we're the closest that we've ever been to the D word or confirmation. Uh, We're pretty – I mean, Adam, I mean, yeah, we – 
you know, NASA never straight answer, but for them to say <laughs> twice in one year, oh yeah, we found uh, seven planets back in March or whenever it was, and then now we found ten more in our own solar system. They're leaning towards something. They're not just doing it for giggles. Something is coming. And if anonymous, true anonymous, know something, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Like I told you in the beginning, uh, the pre-show, I went to reach out to people that I know that use the dark web and find out, is it really, was it truly anonymous or was it the fake anonymous, you know? And they said it was the real anonymous who had... Um, made that declaration. So who knows? I mean, I I don't know. And the Tom DeLon stuff, like I said, he, he he's got sixty million different projects going on all at once. And I think he's just, I think he's realizing that they are controlling him. He's not controlling them. And when they want to get their information out, they will tell him when to do it. Because he's been oddly silent. He's mentioned on Twitter one time to reference to secret machines in the last month when somebody asked him. I asked him on Twitter, hey, dude, what's up? Obviously, he's not going to answer me, but maybe he would have. He didn't. And then the people that I know that are close to his camp said everything's still green light. It's just they're not on his time frame. They're on their own time frame. So. I don't know. We'll see, Adam. But yeah, it's going to be an interesting summer for sure. Yeah, it just seems to me like they'll bring somebody out that is a high official that believes themselves that there's an extraterrestrial presence on Earth but has no real proof. And that just seems like that's going to be the pattern. Well, who's to say that they, let's say they do try out and say, you know, it is ET, right? And then. Everybody will just calm down. They'll say, oh, yeah, no problem. No big deal. They'll go to work the next day. But they won't explain all this other stuff, you know, the poltergeist element, the psychic ability, all that other stuff. But you know what, though? I think they did a roundtable on, uh, I forget what show. I think it was Where where Did the Road Go? And I think Joshua Cutchin brought up a really good point is that will get all brushed under the rug and people go on with their lives, and people accept it, and it'll be no mm-hmm. big deal. And people like you and I who have been doing research or talking about this, we will be pushed off to the side and say, don't listen to them. They'll put out, I don't know, probably Bill Nye, the science guy, and say, <laughs> listen to him, probably, or Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, Those, those are those go-to guys that they'll always go to. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll have to see. It's going to be, like I said, an interesting summer. I don't think it's done yet. I think we're going to be in for a little wild ride here shortly. That's that's probably true, Chris. Rob, you got any thoughts on this? Um, now, this is really kind of the first I'm hearing of all the um, the new MJ-12 yeah. stuff. But um, no, I mean, you know, like you said, we're, we're, we'll see, or maybe we won't. I mean, <laughs> maybe nothing will come of it, and maybe something will, but it's... I don't think there's really a whole lot there to look into at this point. Yeah. It's just the usual tomfoolery. Yep. Yep. 
And interesting that you mentioned Poltergeist, Chris, because we have Jenny Ashford coming on to talk about Poltergeists. <laughs> so, it, 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 it is a synchronicity. It's all over the place. Chris, thank you so much, man, for coming on thank and filling, filling us in on that just kind of briefly. And uh, guys, we're going to go to the main guest. As I mentioned before, we're going to talk to Jenny Ashford about her big compendium mega opus on compulture guys called the unseen hand and we'll be right back on conspiracy normal what if i were to tell you that the forms are not the facts and what if i were to ask you the shape of water water is in a state of constant flow and flux a paradox of weakness and strength my name is aaron david And I am host of Charm the Water, a weekly podcast centering on the occult and mysticism based in Asheville, North Carolina. You can find us at charmthewater.com or iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, your favorite pod feeder. Come holler. (laughs) Well... Rob, it's been a um, rather um, marathon day here for us. It has. Because we actually have recorded the the next show pretty much as well. So, But we have on the line um, Ginny Ashford. And we're going to talk to Ginny about her book, The Unseen Hand, about poltergeists. And this is kind of like a huge compendium of just about every poltergeist case that you could that you could come up with uh, and talk about. Uh, Jenny, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. It's great to have you. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be back. Absolutely. And I was just uh, complimenting you on 13 o'clock podcast as well, which, which towards the end, we, you can kind of talk about that, tell everybody where they can hear it. But uh, I really want to talk about, you know, what kind of led you to write this kind of comprehensive book on poltergeist phenomenon and like what were kind of your criteria on picking the cases and and why did you want to kind of like divide them into the categories that you divided them into? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I had actually been wanting to do a collection for a while because, um, you know, as people who've read my other books know, uh, my other three paranormal books were just, you know, focused on one case. Each one is focused on one case. And I was thinking, you know, I'd really like to write something like the old school parapsychology, you know, poltergeist compendiums like I grew up reading, like back in the 70s that, you know, Hans Bender and William Roll and people like that. And they had kind of put together all these cases that they'd investigated. And I kind of liked that. And I was like, I kind of like the idea of people just being able to pick and choose. You can read the whole thing straight through or you can pick and choose just the ones you're more, you're most interested in. And I said, so what I'm going to do, I said, now, initially, my initial outline, I had 50 cases picked out. And originally, I was going to do them in just chronological order because I thought that would be the easiest. But then it turned out that you know, as I, as I started researching some of the cases, you know, every I'd research one and then like two or three other ones, like similar ones would turn up and I'm like, oh man, that was really interesting too. I should put that in. So I'd add that to the outline. And then once I ended up like, and then I ended up with more than twice the number of cases that I originally set out to write about. 
It was supposed to be a 200 page book and it's actually a 400 page book. Wow. Just because there was so much stuff that I couldn't leave out. I'm like, oh, that's neat. And that's, you know, and that's not as well known as this one and stuff. Like, I felt like I had to put all the well known ones in there, but I also wanted it to be like, I didn't want it, you know, just kind of rehash a lot of the same stuff. So people pick it up and go, man, I've heard all this stuff before. So I wanted to kind of dig down and find some maybe lesser known ones. But the more I thought about it and the more I had, the more cases I had put together, I said, you know, it might be cool like not to do this in strict chronological order. I said, but it might be good to kind of group them according to how bad the manifestations were or how severe they were. Mm -hmm. And I said, and then put them in chronological order in those sections. I said, so then that way it'll almost read like if you read the whole thing straight through, then it'll almost read like like a fiction story because it's getting, you know, it's like building toward a climax. Cause like all the, most of the worst cases are at the end. And so, I mean, it was kind of hard to do because, you know, poltergeist cases are so strange and like, you know, there's so much overlap between a lot of the different manifestations. So it was kind of difficult to sort them, but I tried to sort them as well as I could, you know, kind of keeping with starting out with sort of minor ones and then kind of building up and building up until you were getting stuff that looked like demon possession and that kind of stuff. I just thought it would read better. It would be more entertaining overall. Why did you include, um, and we'll get to the categories here as we go through the interview, but why did you include um, things like ghostly apparitions, violent hauntings, demonic possession? Why was that included um, in this book? Because when, usually when people... Or look at these categories, they would say that these are not poltergeists. These are more, well, like the haunting kind of kind of cases. That this would be something separate from what would be the normal run-of-the-mill poltergeist. Not that that's normal, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to do, and it kind of actually the theme behind the whole book, and I kind of go into it a little bit in the introduction, is that I'm kind of, you know, when it comes to like hauntings and demon possession, like I don't really believe that demons actually exist. I don't know if I believe that ghosts actually exist as in like the intelligent spirits of people who were once alive. I'm not really sure, you know, if I can make that leap, but I kind of thought of it as, you know, a lot of poltergeist cases, they have uh, manifestations that occur that can almost be seen as, it, it can almost masquerade as something else. And I kind of go into this a little bit in the book because I kind of feel like, you know, poltergeist phenomena might have some kind of, you know, quote unquote scientific uh, reason behind it that we just haven't discovered yet. And if this is the case, I kind of feel like there might be some sort of interaction between the people who are witnessing the poltergeist phenomena or her, or who are the focus of the poltergeist phenomena and how they think about the poltergeist phenomena might be affecting how it behaves. I mean, in other words, if you expect, if you think that it's a haunting, then it maybe will act like one. Or if you think it's mm. a demon possession, then it will act like one. So I kind of approached the book with that in mind because I thought in that way, you know, I could kind of explain them all under the poltergeist banner, you know, like I said, I, I left out cases where it was a haunting where people said, oh, I saw the ghost of my grandmother and she told me something that no one else could have known and stuff like that. Because, yeah, maybe that's more a haunting type of thing. But where there was other poltergeist activity, like, yeah, there was stuff flying around everywhere. And then we saw 
a person or we saw, you know, a, a spirit or what appeared to be a spirit, then that seemed to me that maybe that would be a poltergeist infestation that was just kind of masquerading as a haunting. That was kind of the way I approached it. Whether I'm, I'm obviously, I don't know if I'm correct or not, but that was kind of the the theme that I wanted, uh, the overarching theme that I wanted the book to have. It sounds like there's almost like a, um, a co-creation kind of theme there going on. Like what yeah. we, like what we put into the phenomenon reflects itself back to us. We've talked about that with, um, uh, Greg Bishop it, more in the lines of like UFOs and like high strangeness kind of phenomenon. But that sounds almost exactly the same as what he's talked about. Yeah. Because I definitely do think, I mean, if poltergeist phenomena are real, uh, then I definitely do think that they're caused by a living person who is a focus. And I definitely think that person's subconscious state will influence how that manifests. So in that sense, like if, you know, if the, the focus is from like, say a really religious family and immediately their whole family, like they're possessed by a demon and the kid believes that they're possessed by a demon, then I think that the poltergeist activity that they are generating will start to mimic that because that's what everyone is expecting it to do. Yeah. That, so I, that's how the energy will be, you know, funneled. That kind of makes me think of, well, the next question that I had was about, cause it seems like in, in very many of the cases that I read through your book, it would seem like it would start out, you know, things would start moving um, the kind of the typical stuff that would happen in these cases. And then they would bring in a medium or they would bring in a priest or someone that would say, oh, you know, you got a demon or you have a ghost of so-and-so in your house. So do you think that in those cases, those people tend to make these this phenomenon worse for people? I do think that that usually is the case. Yeah. I mean, in most of the cases that I researched, well, like if they called in a medium or if they called in um, you know, a priest or what have you, usually in like 90% of the cases, it either had no effect whatsoever or it got worse. So I definitely do think that by bringing somebody in and having that person validate that this is an outside force doing this to you, I can see how that might make the phenomena get worse because the focus and the family and everybody, you know, that's there witnessing it, that's giving it energy might be like, oh man, this is really bad. Now it's a demon and now it's going to do all this stuff. And I definitely think that that's going to affect how it behaves. And, you know, in a lot of the cases I researched, it did affect how it behaved. Like it would get worse, like after a priest came. Or like I said, in a lot of cases, the priest would come and nothing would happen. Like, you know, it would just continue the way it had been continuing. It didn't really seem to help. Right. Right. Is that, that, that fascinates me in that, in that respect. Cause you have this, you almost have this narrative and I know you're a big fan of like, like a haunting and all yeah. these kind of shows that are on. And I, I'm a big fan of those too. And I've always kind of looked at that kind of stuff. It's like, well, here's the proof that we have that, you know, there's a life after death and blah, blah, blah. But, and, and I still kind of, be, I, I still believe that, you know, personally, but it's like, I wonder how many of these cases really point towards that or you have some other phenomenon that we don't really quite understand and we're putting our own belief systems 
and our own biases into it. So it's just reflecting that back to us. I yeah, wonder about I, that. I mean, yeah, I definitely think that's the case. Yeah. I, yeah. It's just more and more, you know, like not to go on too much of a tangent, but like um, we talked about Malachi Martin on this show uh, Mm -hmm. a few months ago because we had the guy on that did the documentary about it. And it seemed a lot of the things like this had to deal with demonic possession. And it seemed like a lot of those cases, it always seemed like there was this gigantic feedback loop. So you have this phenomenon and then these people come in and they start doing these exorcisms and they're putting their belief system into this exorcism. So it's like, it's like a vicious, it's almost like a vicious cycle in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, there's definitely a thing. I mean, in parapsychology, um, there's something called a, a vicious cycle or a vexation cycle where, you know, the more, you know, the more, um, severe that the manifestations get, the more fear is generated, like the more fear and panic and stuff is generated in the focus and in the witnesses and stuff like that, which in turn feeds uh, the phenomenon more, like gives it more energy and things like that. So it can do worse and worse things. Now, I do think that there might be a natural cutoff point where it won't get any worse because and but it differs from person to person because i think it depends on whoever the focus is and what their limit is um you know maybe maybe if it's a little kid say that's a focus and it, you know the phenomena starts getting scarier and scarier but it'll reach a, reach a point where it won't get any scarier because the kid wouldn't be able to handle it yeah and i think that it has some kind of there's some kind of break in their brain or something like that that knows how much they can handle and pulls back just before it gets to that. You know what I mean? Or like in Tom's case, where like the realization that that he might be behind it actually stopped it. Yeah. And he actually told me, um, you know, in the Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist case, if, uh, if the listeners don't remember that I talked about that, but he, um, he actually told me, he said, I when I still thought it was an outside force or a ghost or something, he said, you know, you can do whatever you want, but I don't want to see you. He told Mm -hmm. it outright. I don't want to see you because he thought that would be too scary. And he never did see it. He said, I never saw anything that looked like other than like just a kind of random mist that didn't really, it didn't look like a person or anything. He's like, I don't want to see anything that looks like a person or a skeleton. I think he thought it would look like a skeleton or like a grim reaper or something. (laughs) Because sure. he was, you know, he was 13. So he was like, as, as long as he didn't see it, then it would be, it wouldn't be too scary for him. And he didn't ever see it. I also found it fascinating in his case that the phenomenon was pretty much consistent with what a 13-year-old would do. Yeah, yeah. And that does seem to be the case, like, in a lot of the stuff I researched. And, you know, in the overwhelming majority of cases, uh, you know, not always, but most of the time, there's usually an adolescent or at least someone who has that type of mindset um, kind of at the center of the phenomena. And so the phenomena is usually something that a kid or, you know, a preteen would do. It's like, I'm going to throw things. I'm going to start <laughs> fires. You yeah. know, I'm going to do all, you know, I'm going to take the cows out in the barn and tie their ropes together by their necks and stuff like that. They do that kind of like prank stuff. And, uh, you know, yeah, and it was the same in Tom's case. It was the same kind of stuff. Stuff would be moved around. Stuff would, like, appear in his back pocket. You know, all that kind of, like, little magic tricks and stuff like that. So, you know, I I definitely do think there has to be something about that. It's funny because I was on another show the other day, 
And um, we were talking about, uh, you know, adolescence and how that might be kind of a generating thing and how it might be maybe there's some kind of weird hormonal thing we don't know about. And then I mentioned that there were a couple of cases that I wrote about in the book where the focus was where it was happened in a house full of like older ladies. And the mm-hmm. host was like, well, maybe it's menopause. Like maybe it is hormonal. And it's like, you know, when it's starting up, it can cause poltergeist activity. And then when it's winding down, it can cause poltergeist activity. I was like, wow, I never thought of that. But that might be the case. It might be some kind of hormonal thing. Who knows? Uh, as for girls, as well as boys. Yeah, yeah. Right. Because normally, like, uh, a lot of people think about it now in the fact that it's that it's all girls that are doing this. But no, I mean, boys, no, as we'll see not. in some of these cases... That, that that it's coming from them as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I found it was, it was a little more than half girls, but it's, but it was a lot of boys too. Sure. Um, in any of these cases, were there any of them that, that you thought, well, maybe there could be some kind of outside intelligence that had nothing to do with, um, a focus or maybe used a focus for some kind of energy or something. Really, the only one, and we might have talked about this when I was um, on last time, but one of the more recent ones was the um, the Seattle Demon House case, Keith Linder. And, you know, aside from all the stuff that he reported before parapsychologists got there, because I don't, I don't make any, you know, I, did, I wrote a book about the case, but I don't make any statement about whether that stuff actually happened. Sure. Um, you know, I, I wrote the book about, Steve Mara, the parapsychologist who went there and investigated it. And he said, this is what happened when I was there. And this is what I reported. He's like, I'm not saying that other stuff didn't happen. But the interesting thing about that case, not only was there no focus, I mean, Keith Linder, he was just a guy. He lived there with his girlfriend at first, and then she left a year or two later. And so he just lived there by himself. No children. There were no children around them in the neighborhood or anything like that. And, you know, so not only was there no kid and there was no obvious focus, But a lot of the EVPs that the parapsychologists got seemed intelligent as though they were commenting on what the investigators were doing at any given time. Like they didn't hear it at the time, but when they played the tapes back, you know, like Don Phillips, um, who was a sensitive that went there, you know, with the team and he was exploring the crawl space underneath the house and he was recording And he didn't hear any voices at the time, but when he came up and played the tape back, he said, we heard a very distinct voice. And I've heard the EVP because they played a bunch of them for me when I was working on the book. And there's a very clear voice with an Irish accent. And the man says, it's a long house. As though he's commenting on the guy crawling through the, you know, about Don Phillips crawling through the, through the Hmm. crawl space underneath the house. And um, also Don had bought some like a bouquet of flowers and he brought them to the house and put them in a vase. And they had an EVP that they recorded because they had the stuff going all the time. And they had an EVP that recorded and a woman's voice said, whose are the flowers? And then another voice said that man bought them Hmm. like as clear as a bell. It just sounds like two women talking. So, and then, you know, they did research later that, uh, that determined, because they said all these, a lot of the um, EVPs they captured had Irish accents, which they thought was very strange because it happened in Seattle. Right. But it turned out that a lot of Irish settlers had lived there, like, and worked in the logging industry back in the day. And, um, you know, a lot of them had died there and things like that. So 
they're not really sure. There was certainly a lot of poltergeist activity going on in that case. But in light of all the EVPs they captured, which really seemed to have some type of intelligence and was communicating with them apparently in real time, um, that seems to me more likely to be something more akin to a haunting. And maybe it was like kind of a combination of things going on. I don't know why it happened on that particular spot. You know, none of the other houses around there seem to be particularly haunted or anything like that. But it was just that one area for some reason. It was some kind of perfect storm of factors happening there that got all this stuff happening. What, all up. what about the Bell Witch? Because that's, uh, that's one that is, well, that's pretty close to where we are right now. Yeah, it's a local favorite. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of like, I'm on the fence about the Bell Witch. Like, I'm not sure how much of it is legitimate and how much of it, because it's been so exaggerated and stuff over the years, like the story's been told and retold and stuff like that. Sure. And I did put it in the book. And, you know, like I said, even um, even when... I put cases in the book that I didn't know like how much I believed them. Like I put the Amityville horror in there, even though I think that was probably a hoax, but um, you know, it's just so famous a case. You kind of can't leave it out. Yeah. So, but I tried to kind of keep it objective. You know, I was, you know, I said, if people said it was a hoax, then I said what they said. And I was like, but these people said it happened and this happened to them and stuff like that. So the bell, which you know, because it's been so retold and so exaggerated, I don't know. I don't know. That really does have some aspects of haunting, but a lot of it really did seem like poltergeist, even disembodied voices and stuff like that. That's still kind of a poltergeist thing. Um, but I don't know the, the, the fact that it went on for so long, like over so many generations and, you know, ostensibly like after whoever was the focus originally, if there was one, you know, after they died and because, you know, it, it, it came back like a hundred, some, what, like 107 years later or something like that. It said it was going to come back and it came yeah, back. Supposedly it did. Yeah. Yeah. And all this other uh. stuff. So, like I said, you know, like a lot of the cases in the book, a lot of it is, you know, what the witnesses said they saw and, you know, cause a lot of it wasn't scientifically, studied at the time yeah. and, you know, same with the bell witch so you know i'm willing to concede that maybe some people saw this and that but i don't know i don't know if it was a ghost i i kind of feel like it was somebody a living person generating that maybe yeah or maybe it was just or maybe it was something with the family like maybe all of their their synergy or something like that together was kind <laughs> of generating this this entity i don't know if it was a ghost though there's a folkloric aspect to the bell witch story so that that is kind of a problem yeah but there is some interesting stuff with it but yeah we did a whole show on that so i would just direct people to that show from like three years ago but like um what's the oldest case that you have in the book the oldest one i found and it there wasn't much detail on it but the oldest one i found was actually from the first century it was from 95 a.d and it, uh, it was just a couple sentences in uh, Flavius Josephus, and he was describing an exorcism that was being performed. And when the exorcism was done, a bowl that was sitting across the room picked itself up and flipped itself over all by itself. 
as though, you know, the, the two things were associated somehow. And that was kind of all the detail, but I was like, that definitely sounds like the first recorded poltergeist phenomenon right there, right in Flavius Josephus. Not saying there weren't some that were older than that, but that was like the first one that I could track down. And that was, yeah, from the first century. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, that I'd have to, I have a work of Josephus. I'm about to see if I can find that. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's get into the categories because uh, you start off with the stone th- stone throwing. Yeah. And this one is interesting because I I know that you know the guys at Where Did the Road Go crew. Um, yeah. They're actually the first place I actually first heard you. Um, you know uh, Joshua Cutchin, our good friend has made he's kind of made an observation about stone throwing in that you know a lot of people say well you know stone throwing if it happens inside the house it's a poltergeist if it happens out in the woods it's bigfoot throwing stones at you yeah so (laughs) it's like there's like some interesting aspects to this that um what's the best case for you like the of stone throwing One of my favorite ones, because like you said, I mean, I did put some where the stones were falling outside, even though obviously Uh that that could have other explanations. I mean, you know, when the stones are appearing up by your ceiling and falling inside the house, I mean, obviously that has to be some kind of paranormal thing going on there. But um, I think one of the best cases was, and this was actually one I hadn't heard of before, but I found a bunch that were in Australia and a lot of them kind of started out with uh, with stone throwing. But um, if you just like forgive me for one second, because I have to find where it went. Oh, actually, I didn't want to talk about the Australian one. I wanted to talk about the stone throwing spook of Little Dixie. That was kind of uh, that was a recent case. That was well, recent It's from 1990. OK. And um, it was in Oklahoma And it was this family, they were called, they were the McWethy family. And the first thing that happened was the family were all kind of sitting outside. It was hot in their house. They didn't have AC and stuff like that. And it was, um, it was an older couple. They had an 18 year old daughter and their 18 year old daughter had a baby. So they were all sitting out in the yard and all these stones suddenly came flying at them and it just kept going all night and stuff like that. And then it just kept going like all through the ensuing weeks. And they, you know, at first they thought, oh, somebody's out in the woods throwing stones at our house for some reason. But, you know, they would go out there, they would get all their neighbors out there and they would search around and stuff like that. And they never found anybody. Now, the weird thing is what they would do after a while, because it was like, okay, well, let's see if, um, if we can figure out like who's doing this. So one of the neighbors like picks up one of the rocks and he starts like putting symbols on them with like nail polish. Right. And he paints the nail polish on there, puts a little symbol on there and he throws it back out into the woods. And then it comes right back at him, like with the thing. And he, um, they actually like threw them into a lake, like on the property. And when they came flying back, they weren't wet anymore. (laughs) What in the world? So, yeah. So, and then later on, um, you know, it, it wasn't just stones after that. Then it started throwing other things at them inside the house, like coins, eggs, bottles. Um, it threw a wrench at the baby Oh, and, you know, things like that. So, um, they definitely, I think the 18 year old girl was definitely the focus 
And, you know, there were other manifestations too, like there were disembodied voices and things like that. That's kind of one thing. And I have no idea why this is, but it seemed like in a lot of um, stone throwing cases, especially from, from the earlier times, um, is that stone throwing and disembodied voices tend to go together. And usually the disembodied voices will gossip or will, um, you know, say like the, the worst secrets of, you know, all the people in the area and things like that. And I, I found that over and over again. I was like, that is a really interesting detail. Like, why would that go together necessarily? Like stones throwing and some disembodied voice saying, oh, you're a terrible person. You did this and that and the other thing. And you know what I mean? And like gossiping uh-huh. about, like, I'm not really sure why those two things go together. But I found like a, quite a lot of cases where those two manifestations went together. Weird. And I have no idea why that is. Weird. And the same, and the similar thing kind of happened in uh, in this case from 1990, where yeah. there was just this kind of disembodied voice all the time. And uh, it actually, this this voice actually ended up having a name. It said its name was Michael, and it and he said he was from Saturn, and that he had been watching TV with them, and that's how he learned to speak English. And it would draw like astronomical symbols, usually like the symbol for Saturn. It would draw it like all over the house, like on mirrors and stuff like that. So it was an alien poltergeist. <laughs> evidently <laughs> do you think that there is a tulpa aspect to this um i'm not familiar with that oh the um well like you're familiar with the the philip experiment right yeah 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 the the whole idea of um of people manifesting a spirit or an entity but it's not something that is um independent of a person it's manifested by a group of people similar to the Philip experiment. Yeah. I think that is a definite possibility. Like I'm not really sure if I fall down completely on the, and it might be a combination of the two things. It might be, um, a case where it's one person generating it, or it might be a kind of case where it is a person generating it, but there has to be other people around for it to, you know, coalesce kind of. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, like if that person was left to their own devices and weren't around these other people or in this particular environment, then nothing would happen. So I definitely do think there is some aspect of some kind of group synergy that has to be present. Because, I mean, otherwise, I feel like it would be a lot more common um, if it was just up to one person going through a trauma or going through adolescence or whatever. Because, you know, everybody goes through adolescence everybody sure. goes through trauma and stuff like that so you'd think that stuff would be happening all the time and it's not so i feel like there really kind of has to be a lot of factors that have to line up for it to happen like a perfect storm in the environment right exactly yeah and like the bell witch was said to have done the same thing where she would gossip about people and yeah yeah and, yeah and, that was, that was Right. And yeah this so uh, the same the same kind of the same kind of phenomenon that's that's interesting. I, I, you could probably win a Pulitzer to like to figure that out. Yeah, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> I know. I just thought it was. I was like, that's so random. But I was like, when I was, you know, figure when I was trying trying to do all the stone throwing cases, yeah. I'm like, hey, they all like talking about like gossiping about people in town and stuff. That's so weird. It's like some kind of like <laughs> it's like some kind of repressed id that likes to throw stuff and gossip. 
Yeah, I definitely think it is that. And I mean, you know, and I think I might have, I talked about this a little bit in the Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist and about uh, Tom's case was that um, I definitely do think it's something to do with people's subconscious. And it's almost like your subconscious can act outside of your body, like, but without you being aware of it or in any control of it. Yeah. Because it acts like a subconscious would act. You know, it does like random stuff. It's, you know, it does, it just behaves out of anger. It just does that kind of stuff, like a repressed emotion, but it's coming out that way. Like, you know, like steam coming out. If you can't release your anger, you can't release your emotions in a normal way, then it's just going to leak out somewhere else. You know, I kind of feel there's that aspect to it. Yeah, that's an extremely good point. Let's talk about raps and taps. Uh, Two of the cases, um, drummer of Ted Worth. Yeah. And uh, the Fox Sisters. Yeah. Which, of course, starts spiritualism. Yeah. Um, the drummer of Tedworth, and like I said, this is from 1661. So, you know, and one caveat that I put in the book, too, is that, you know, the older the case is, obviously the larger the grain of salt you have to take it with because, you know, they, they didn't have parapsychologists. They didn't have scientific investigation. I said it was basically just people there and they wrote it down and sometimes they had agendas and sometimes it got rewritten and, you know, refiltered through lots of other people's stories and stuff. So, but the drummer of Tedworth is a quite famous tale and it happened in uh, Wiltshire, England. And there was this whole thing where this guy, he was a vagrant and his name was William Drury and he came into town and, um, he had once been a soldier, but I guess he fell on hard times or whatever. And so he was going around towns like playing drums for money. Um, you know, he was like a busker or something like that. So he comes to um, this little town, Tedworth, and he's playing his drum all over the place. Now, the magistrate of the town did not like William Drury. And he's like, he thought he was annoying. And it's like he's going around this town just playing drums and stuff all the time. So he... Um, So he basically got the guy kicked out of town and he took his drum. Now the magistrate puts the drum in his house. And after that happens, uh, the magistrate's wife and children started to report that they heard drumming coming from the house, like just rapping on the walls. And it sounded like the drum, like it was coming from the drum but the drum wasn't beating. It was up in the attic or something like that. So, you know, they were hearing stuff on the roof and stuff on the walls and stuff like that. And at first they thought it was a real person or it was a gang or something like that that was trying to get in the house, but, you know, they'd open the door and no one would be there. And then they started hearing, and then it kind of ramped up, and then they started hearing, like, animal sounds. Like, they started pawing and scratching, like, from inside the walls. And then they started seeing some apparitions, although they were usually just shadows, And, um, you know, sometimes they would see like footprints, like in the dirt on the floor, like that had claws and things like that. And, um, so after all that, like the magistrates are thinking, well, maybe this William Drury person that I took the drum from, maybe he died somewhere and he's haunting me like to take revenge or something like that. But then they figured out that William Drury was still alive. You know, he was in another town, but he was still alive. And, um, you know, and then there was um, there was like a lawsuit and stuff like that because William Drury apparently heard about the the poltergeist infestation, and he seemed to think it was kind of funny. So he 
would tell other people, yeah, I'm a, I'm totally a sorcerer and I put a curse on the family and that's why they're hearing all this drumming and stuff like that. So <laughs> whether he really said that, I don't know, but like some other witnesses did say that he said that. And so there was like this huge lawsuit and all this other kind of stuff. But, um, you know, he, he eventually, uh, eventually the, um, you know, they had, they still had the banging, the lights going on and off shoes being thrown against the windows, stuff like that. Um, the poltergeist also emptied chamber pots onto their beds, which was nice. And, um, (laughs) very, very nice. Yes. Yeah. So things like that. And, um, you know, so whether this actually happened, I don't know. Uh, William Drury, there were some court records that showed that uh, he was arrested for employing an evil spirit. Um, but he uh, he went to jail, but he appealed and he got out. But, you know, there's kind of a lot of, you know, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. Some people say the magistrate just made the whole thing up, just, you know, for shits and giggles. I don't know why, but, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like that. And, uh, you know, it was kind of said, oh, you know, we some scientists said, Oh, we went to the house. We wanted to examine the drum and he wouldn't let us see it and all this other kind of stuff. So, you know, whether it really happened or not, I don't know, but apparently it was a haunted drum. And the guy who the drum belonged to said that he had caused the drum to beat by itself as well as other manifestations, just because he was mad that uh, the magistrate had kicked him out of town for being an annoyance. (laughs) But uh, the Fox sisters, uh, that's another very famous story. Now, the Fox sisters, I included this in the book uh, after some thought, because although and and then I thought, well, it's so iconic. I mean, like you said, it, it was, you know, the start of spiritualism. Right. So it had significance in that regard, even though, um, you know, later they confessed that they had faked it. Um, and the interesting thing about the Fox sisters is there was not, you know, there were, there were no other manifestations. I mean, in the drummer of Tedworth case, yeah, it started out with knocks on the walls and the roof and stuff like that. But then they later saw, you know, apparitions and things like that. The Fox sisters, pretty much all they had was the knocking and, you know, it would answer questions and stuff like that. Now, you know, whether, you know, whether they were made to give the, you know, give the confession. I don't know. I they probably, they probably did fake it. I would think, um, because there, there were actually rumors that they were faking it before, like way before they actually went to the papers and said, yeah, we just cracked our toe joints and that's what that noise was. And, you know, even, even the incident where they, that had started it all when they were still girls, where their mom heard something uh, knocking from upstairs and they said, Oh, it's a ghost. And, you know, we're talking to it. They said all they did there was they tied a string around an apple, uh, like a, the, the, uh, what do you call it on the apple and just banged the apple against the floor. And that's all they were doing. And they said later, we just figured out how to crack our toe joints and crack the joints in our feet. And it, you know, it was loud enough that everyone could hear it. So, you know, then they would just start talking to ghosts and it started a whole, Religion. And, uh, you know, even the fact that they admitted later that they had made it all up didn't it didn't really stop that juggernaut because it still kept on going. <laughs> wasn't there um, in that case, wasn't there actually a skeleton that was found in the wall and they had said that the that it was a ghost of someone that was 
killed in the house and stuffed into the wall? See, there was some controversy about that because while, um, and I believe either even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle said, oh, there was a skeleton and it was totally found in the wall. But then I read some other uh, accounts of the time that said, you know, we found a couple of bones on the property, but we don't know if they were human bones. It's like they could have been a pig. It could have been a dog. It sure. could have been mm-hmm. other things. So, you know, they weren't really sure. And I think they even like asked, to, oh, can we have these bones buried in the churchyard? And, you know, the local uh, religious authority said no, because they weren't human. So, you know, I, I honestly, I don't know how they knew about it. I'm not saying that the fox scissors, maybe they were some kind of natural mediums. Maybe they were uh, accessing some kind of knowledge and then just using, you know, their their fake knocking to you know, to kind of reveal that information that they were getting in some paranormal fashion. But, you know, I don't know, because like I said, it was so long ago, it was 1848. And, you know, there's, there's still, there's still so much controversy about whether those were actually even human bones or whether anyone was actually even murdered on that property. And I believe that a farmer, like from a neighboring farm, Um, He was never arrested for a murder, but I think a lot of people in town thought he was a murderer and treated him thusly. Uh, So he didn't have too easy a time of it after that, even though he said he didn't do anything. So that was kind of a shame. You know, it seems like, I mean, because the, the, um, the toe popping thing, I'm kind of skeptical on because I don't know anybody that can do that. Like that, that just, maybe that they had some kind of, Maybe they were double jointed and they could do it, but like, yeah. Can you pop your toes, Rob? Can you pop your toes? I mean, no, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I actually just, just tried. Just I was just like, sitting here trying to like think about how, how that would work. Yeah, it just, yeah, it just doesn't seem like a very good explanation to me. And like the, the I know I'm not saying that they. I mean, they did admit they faked it, but yeah. but uh, there could have been some real phenomenon. And it, it, it there seems like there's some parallels in that case with. With infield too. Oh yeah. To me, yeah. The two girls and yeah. the person in the house, and I mean the whole infield case. I mean, I, I still to, I, I don't see how she could have made that voice. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't she see how really she could have done it on and on for a long time. Uh, yeah. Without hurting her vocal cords, which seemed very strange. Some people said, "Oh, well, she, you know, she could have used her false vocal cords and things like that." Yeah, but. I don't know. That seems unlikely. Not a lot of people know how to do that. I mean, I don't know how to do that. So I don't know. I, I kind of feel like, but on the other hand, in the Enfield case, I don't know if Bill was actually haunting the house. I think she might have been, like I said, in the, in the Fox sisters case, she might've been accessing some kind of information, you know, from beyond kind of, maybe she was also sure. a medium without knowing it. And she was just manifesting itself as that. So I don't know if Bill was still hanging around the house or if she was just channeling some information that she was getting. Yeah, it it really it really makes you wonder in that in that case because I I I still think it's a pretty strong case, even though in the infill case, the two girls did fake some of the phenomenon. But Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But I I don't think that um, that necessarily means 
that all of it is faked. Right. And honestly, the thing is, though, I mean, when Janet and Margaret faked things, they were caught immediately. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd think that if they were faking all the time, then they would be caught immediately. And they weren't. And too many people were there. Too many people saw it. I mean, they were pretty much, they were under observation a lot. It seems unlikely that for 18 months, um, you know, they were able to like sneak around right under everybody's noses and do all this crazy stuff without anyone seeing them do it. Yeah. Um, you know, you'd think that someone would have seen them, all of the people that were there. Like, hey, why is she throwing that? Hey, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, and, you know, the same thing happened in um, the Rochdale poltergeist case, um, you know, the one where it was raining inside the house. You know, they caught the focus faking after they had been moved to another property, like she was throwing things around behind her mother's back, but they caught her immediately. I mean, they had set up secret cameras in there and they saw her on the camera. She was throwing things, but she wasn't doing it at the original house. I think what happens a lot of times, especially if the focus is a kid or someone who um, likes all the attention that, you know, if the phenomena starts to kind of fade away or if they're afraid it's not going to perform, then they will fake something just to give somebody something to look at or maybe even to give their subconscious more confidence, you know, for the for the actual poltergeist to manifest. So I don't think it's necessarily, um, you know, a ding on the whole phenomena just because the focus might have been caught once or twice doing something. Yeah. You know, plus kids love attention. Yeah, so there's exactly. that aspect and, as well. And, you know, the thing about it is a lot of times, you know, kids that are the focus of poltergeist activity are kids that are maybe having some problems, like having some emotional problems or there are some family problems or something like that. So, you know, maybe this kind of attention and validation that they're getting, you know, maybe they don't get that from their family. So they don't want it to stop. And, you know, you can't really blame them. So... I, so I don't think it's strange at all that you see sometimes they'll fake things, especially if, you know, newspaper people are coming or parapsychologists are coming and they're afraid that it's not going to do anything for them. And it's like, oh, everyone's going to think I'm faking and they're and it's all going to go away. So they're like, well, maybe if I just do one thing, you know, they'll stay and it'll start back up again and it'll be fine. So I definitely I, I'm definitely not surprised that there's like a small percentage of faking in some of these cases. Yeah, very true. Uh, flying objects. These are yeah. identified, but we don't know how they're flying. Um, <laughs> the two that I picked out on this one, Popper the Poltergeist, which yes. I love the alliteration there, and yeah. uh, Miami, Miami, Florida case yeah. uh, with the, the warehouse. Yes. And uh Popper the actually Popper the Poltergeist is one of my favorite cases just because it was so the manifestation of it was so strange. And um this happened in 1958. And it also happened in Long Island, New York. Like, you know, it's kind of the lesser known Amityville horror, although it wasn't as scary. Mm-hmm. Almost all of the phenomena was bottles popping their caps. And all of the um, the stuff that was inside the bottles would come flying out. <laughs> there were a few other things, too. But and you know, like most of these cases, it started pretty suddenly. Um, there were two kids in the house, I believe. Um, 
there was a 13 year old daughter and a 12 year old son. And at first, you know, because uh, it just happened so suddenly, like the kids came home from school one day, everybody's just messing around. And all of a sudden, um, the, all these bottles in different rooms in the house, their caps popped off and, you know, the, whatever was inside them would come flying out. And it wasn't all bottles of the same thing. It wasn't like it was all soda or it was all, some of it was bleach. Some of it was perfume. Some of it was laundry soap. Some of it was other things. So they, um, at first the father thought that, oh, well maybe the little boy is putting like Alka-Seltzer tablets or something like that in all these bottles you know, and making them explode because he thinks it's funny or something like that. But he could never catch the kid doing that. And the kid was like that he wasn't doing it, that he wasn't doing it. So when they um, called in a parapsychologist to investigate, that was one of the first things the parapsychologist did was like, we're going to do an experiment to see if when you put like these kind of Alka-Seltzer tablets or something like that in the bottles, you know, will they do that? Will the, will the cap just pop off and all the stuff spew out? Well, it turns out that's not what happens. They said, when we put those in there, either the air just leaks around the outside of the cap and nothing happens or the whole bottle explodes. They're like, we could never replicate just the cap popping off and the stuff flying out. So, so that was that was probably 90% of the manifestations were that, were just bottles popping their caps for no reason whatsoever. Um, there were also a few other ones, like, um, and the bottles would actually move, like on the shelves, before they would pop their caps. They would just, they would sit there and rattle, and then the, the cap would fly off. And um, this, and it's funny because this was actually witnessed by uh, cops, because, you know, in some cases, and this happened in the Enfield case, too, it's like sometimes when people don't know what to do, and especially this was the 50s, and they didn't know to call a parapsychologist, I guess, it was, well, we'll call the police, <laughs> you know, and then the police get there, and they're just like, oh, we don't know what to do about this. It's not, you know. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so after that, you know, they they called uh, they called a priest. They, they saw some other things, like some things would... Uh, would float and things like float and levitate and stuff like that. But, um, you know, they, they ended up having to call a priest and priests kind of, it didn't really do much good. Um, the phenomena was actually eventually caught on live TV, although I couldn't find video of it, but, uh, it was quite a famous case in, uh, Long Island at the time. Now, eventually, bigger stuff started happening, like bigger furniture started flipping over, um, like a big, uh, a big statue, like flew against, flew across the room and broke a window or broke a, a mirror rather. And, you know, stuff like that. So, so this case was actually investigated by several parapsychologists, including JB Ryan, uh, the very famous parapsychologist from Duke university, uh, the one that did the, you know, tested the, um, tested psychic ability with the cards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dr. William Roll was there as well. So, you know, like I say, the parapsychologists, they they did test. They couldn't replicate the bottle popping, and they witnessed other things too, um, like a bowl of flowers sliding across the table um, and things of that nature, furniture moving and things like that. And they never could figure out why um, – you know, why it was happening. They did generally determine that it was the little boy 
the uh, 12-year-old boy that was the focus. Um, but some things happened when he wasn't there. Most of the time he was there, but some things happened when he wasn't there too. But they did think that he was probably uh, the focus. And the weird thing is that it only went on for about a month and then stopped just as suddenly as it had started. Weird. Yeah. So, but like I said, other things happened, but mostly the bottle popping, which I just, cause that's, I think that's pretty much the only time I've read about that. <laughs> Where it just yeah. Pops, yeah. Which just pop their caps. It just seems such a strange, like a very specific kind of uh, manifestation. Just very, very weird. You know that the, um, that it wouldn't, that it would happen when the boy wasn't there. I don't know if that really surprises me as much because if you think about it, there could have just been this energy that still lingered, almost like a battery. Yeah. Like like, like the house itself becomes a battery almost, or the environment. Because I don't think, I I mean, I don't necessarily think, I do think that poltergeists are caused by a focused individual, but I don't think the individual has to be there, doesn't have to be present in the house. I mean you know, as long as they live there and they're there most of the time, because I mean, you got to think if this poltergeist is manifesting things outside of this person's body, then what difference does distance make? Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and I, I mentioned the Rochdale case before the focus in that case was an, uh, was an older woman, but she had kind of a mental disability that made her, um, act much younger. And, you know, parapsychologists stayed in the house when the family was not there and things happened even when she wasn't there, even though they were sure she was the focus. And, you know, they found that very interesting. But in a way, it's not like she was, you know, on another planet or like it was, you know, she was just in the same town. She was just a few miles away. So, you know, if it can move things around with her five feet away, then it should be able to move things around with her, you know, five miles away. Yeah. It really shouldn't make any difference as long as she lives in that house and her energy is still kind of uh, in that house. It reminds me of like spooky action at a distance, which is a actual well-regarded scientific theory. Yeah. Uh. And, you know, it's like, you know, people can argue about, well, spooky action at a distance is only, you know, referring to, you know, tiny little atoms and things like that. But, you know, and maybe it doesn't scale up. But, you know, maybe it does. Maybe maybe we'll figure that out one of these days and we'll be like, oh, duh, you know, we should have figured that out a long time ago. I, I'm sure we just make a bomb out of it. That's probably yeah, what it would, just like we that's probably what it would be. <laughs> Can we nuke the planet with that? Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the Miami, Florida case uh, with the flying objects. I thought that was a really yes, interesting one. This one happened in the 60s. And this was one of the rare cases that happened in a workplace. It didn't happen in someone's residence. And at first, they weren't really sure um, who the culprit was, but it kind of uh, came, you know, it kind of became clear after not too long. And uh, it was a warehouse that manufactured, um, you know, tourist stuff, like, you know, cheap Florida kind of stuff, like alligator ashtrays and, you know, beer (laughs) mugs and things like that. Oh, Florida. yeah, I know. That's where I'm from. I'm from there, so I so I know all about. I know all about Florida man. I know all about that. <laughs> yeah, you and so, Tom are literally Florida man and Florida woman. We are, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, we got stories. But um, yeah. So this so this warehouse 
they started uh, having problems with breakages. Uh, like stuff would just fall off of shelves or it would pop out of a box and break. And they couldn't figure out who was doing it. Like at first, obviously, the boss was like, you know, what the hell are you employees doing? It's like, are you breaking stuff just to be assholes? Are you, you know, are you dropping things and you don't want to tell me or something like that? And all of them were like, no, man, we're not doing it. It's like the stuff is just falling off all by itself. And um, and sometimes it would fall off like in several parts of the warehouse, like at the same time. And it seemed like uh, the focus of it, it was usually beer mugs or they had these they had these glasses with like zombies on them. Uh, it, it seemed to like to break those. And so after a while, all this stuff was breaking. And finally, the uh, the manager of the warehouse was just like, you know, what are we going to do about this? It's been like a month and all this stuff is breaking and, you know, we can't afford it. So they uh, the manager called the police. And uh, at this point, he's like, I you know, I've been watching it. I don't think it's a person doing it. I think it's a ghost you know, throwing things around. So he called the cops, you know, like you do. And, uh, and the <laughs> cop got there too. And, um, when the cop got there, he actually saw stuff like falling off the shelf by itself. So he called a bunch of other cops. He's like, you guys got to see this. So they come there and they said, now the strange thing about it, it's, and this happens in a lot of poltergeist cases too. You never see the thing leaving its spot. You always see it. You sometimes you see it out of the corner of your eye, like it's moving or something like that. But when you look right at it, it's either already in flight or it's just fallen to the floor. And this was kind of the case here where, you know, somebody would see something out of the corner of their eye, something would fall off the shelf. Everybody would go check that out. And then like two shelves over, something else would fly off and break. And then everybody would run over there. So it, it almost kind of like, the poltergeist like to lead people around the warehouse. It's like, now something's breaking over here and now something's breaking over there. So after a while, they figured out that there was an employee who was 19 years old and he was from Cuba and his name was Julio Vasquez. And he worked there as a shipping clerk. Um, and I'm not sure other than him always being at work when uh, the breakages would happen or him at least always being in the area. Um, you know, it took them about a month or two before they figured out that he was probably the focus. But um, they they actually when they when they talked to him about it, they um, discovered that he really hated that job. He <laughs> hated his boss. And he said, look, I'm not breaking this stuff on purpose, but I'm kind of happy about it. Like, you know. It, it makes me happy that all this stuff is breaking. Like he just thought it was kind of awesome. So, <laughs> so they definitely did think that it was because, you know, he seemed like a very angry individual and he was going through some problems. I think he like, he had a lot of financial problems and, and things like that. So, um, so it's, it's Florida, anyway, man strikes it, again. He is Florida man. Again, he strikes again. <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, so actually, uh, William roll investigated this one too. And he was there when he saw, and he would put um, like target objects. He said, okay, I'm going to put this on the shelf. And he's like, I'm going to put um, a clipboard or like a folder in front of it because he wanted to see if the objects were lifting up off the shelf before falling off the shelf. He's like, I want to make sure they're not just tipping off. So he would push the things back. He would take a glass and he would push it back like a couple of feet 
And then he would put a folder in front of it. So he's like, okay, so that is not just falling off. That has to pick up like a fraction of an inch and go over this folder and then fall off. And he observed that happen many, many times. And he also observed it happening when he was looking right at Julio and when Julio had uh, both his hands full. So they're like, unless someone has rigged up a really elaborate thread system in here, like that's just pulling glasses off and things like that, there's like, there's really no way that a person could be doing this. So it ended up that uh, Julio actually ended up getting fired, not just because of the poltergeist activity, but also he had stolen some money from the petty cash box. There you um, go. You know, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so he ended up getting fired and he didn't really, and it's kind of sad because William Roll, um, thinking that Julio might have some kind of um, untapped psychic ability or he wanted to test it. So he asked Julio, he's like, why don't you come and let us study you? And, you know, we'll do tests and stuff like that. And Julio didn't want to do it, um, which was kind of a shame because they were going to pay him and things like that. But um, so it, it didn't actually end up too happy for Julio. Um, the poltergeist activity did stop at the warehouse after he left. But um, Julio ended up going to jail after breaking into a jewelry store to steal a ring for his girlfriend. So <laughs> like you and, do, uh, like you do, right? It, like you do. Yeah. And it was kind of sad <laughs> because uh, William Roll did actually uh, visit him and offer to help him after he got out of jail and stuff like that. He raised some money for him and things like that. But uh, yeah. And he actually, you know what the weird thing is, is Julio actually, um, after he got out of jail, he had like a bunch of um, kind of dead end jobs like after that, but he ended up getting shot in a, in a holdup. He lived. But um, he couldn't really work after that because of the because of his injuries. But yeah, he ended up getting shot in a holdup. So he never he never did really have much of a happy life after that, and yeah. it was kind of a shame. And he seemed like a really unhappy person even from the get go. I mean, he was only nineteen when the poltergeist phenomena started, and uh, but yeah, it seemed like kind of a shame. And then he just kind of vanished into obscurity after that, like after him getting shot and getting injured and things like that. Wow, uh, it's like a troubled person. Can yeah. produce this. Yeah, he definitely was. The, the next one, water, oil, and blood. And yeah. um, not going to talk much about oil, but the, one of the most amazing cases for me is the Dan Decker case or Don Decker. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And um, also the Atlanta, Georgia one, which is just plain bizarre. Yeah, that's super weird. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Don Decker. He's, it's funny because I thought he was a lot better known than he was. Um, you know, when I was writing the book about Rochdale, uh, we were talking to Steve Mara about the Don Decker case because, you know, the similar thing of indoor rain. And sure. actually, Steve Mara's like, oh, I never heard of it. I was like, yeah, it happened in the 80s. And uh, it happened in Pennsylvania. And um, this was, this is kind of one of the rare cases where, it seemed like, or at least the focus claimed to be able to control the poltergeist activity, which as far as I know, and I think it's the only case that I mentioned at the book where, where they, where he said he could control it to a limited extent. But, um, when it first started out, they think that what made it start was, uh, the death of his grandfather 
And he was in prison. Uh, Don Decker was in prison at the time, and he was given a furlough to go to the funeral. Now, he claims that the grandfather abused him. And that he so he had this kind of, uh, you know, hate sort of uh, sort of relationship. So he was kind of glad that the grandfather was dead. But then it kind of caused like all these sort of guilt feelings and stuff like that, which which I kind of feel like helped this uh, this phenomenon to manifest the way that it did. And what ended up happening was after he got home from the funeral, he was staying with uh, some friends of the family. And now the first thing he saw was he said that he saw um, an apparition of an old man. Like he went up to the bathroom and he saw an apparition of an old man wearing a crown and he saw it reflected in the bathroom window. And then he said that, um, I don't know if he meant that the apparition did it or if it just spontaneously appeared, but he had some scratches on his arm um, that he said that he did not do himself. So shortly after that, he started, uh, you know, the friends he was staying with, said that he started acting very strangely and he was going into these trances and stuff like that. And shortly after that, it started raining inside their house and they began calling, you know, they called the landlord, they called some other stuff and they had no idea what was going on. Cause I mean, initially they thought it was a plumbing problem as you would, but you know, the landlord came and said, there's no plumbing behind this wall. It's like, this can't be happening. And the interesting thing too, is that, uh, when they took Don Decker to another place to get him out of the house for a little while, they like, they took him to a pizza parlor. It started raining there too. Uh, the woman that worked there said, yeah, as soon, and she told him to get out because the same thing was happening there. And the cops that came because they called the cops as well. The cops that came said that they saw raindrops going sideways also and up. Weird. Which which was also the case in, in the Rochdale case also. Um, they saw raindrops going up. I don't think they saw any going sideways. But in the in the Don Decker case, they did see, see some going sideways. Now, there were some other things, too. Um, dishes uh, and pans would rattle when he walked past them. And several witnesses said that he was bodily picked up by an unseen force and thrown against a wall. Um, you know, so there were some other things going on as well. Now, after all this indoor rain and things like that, he had to go back to jail after the furlough was over. And at the jail, the warden, as well as other prisoners and other guards and things like that, said that he could make it rain inside his cell, like whenever he wanted to. Um, And he evidently told them, you know, I can do it. And some of the guards were like, yeah, no, you can't, whatever. And then he would do it. And they said that he had this really horrible, like everything would get really cold and he'd have like this really horrible uh, look on his face, like really scary. He was like scaring people that that uh, worked there and that were other prisoners there. And he evidently also made it rain a little bit in the warden's office, which was quite a distance away from his cell Mm -hmm. when he was asked to do so. Um, Apparently, he did not believe he did come to believe that he could control it. And he said he could control it to an extent. He believed that it was that he was possessed to a degree. Um, he yeah. did ask for a priest to come and, you know, give him an exorcism and things like that, which apparently made the phenomena stop. But he, he did not think, Oh, I'm just doing this. You know, it's just energy or just random poltergeist activity. I think he kind of thought it was a demon and he may still uh, to this day. He um, 
I'm not sure if he's still in prison, but he did go to prison again later for uh, arson, <laughs> oddly enough, because yeah. of all the pain and stuff like that. So it was like the opposite thing. He was he was paid to set fire to uh, to a restaurant for insurance purposes. Like the owner of the restaurant paid him to set it on fire so he could get the insurance. And uh, him and the owner of the restaurant ended up going to jail. And he did not do that with his mind. I just make that no, clear. No, evidently not, because they. <laughs> if he had done it with his mind, I guess they wouldn't have caught him with they. <laughs> 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 yeah, we'll get to that part, that section. Uh, the Atlanta, Georgia one, and this had to do with blood. Yeah, and this is actually one of my favorite cases, and this is one of the few that did not have a, a teenager at the center. It's, it was actually two elderly people. It was an elderly couple. And they had evidently lived in this house in Atlanta for many years, and nothing strange had ever happened, Not that they, not that they ever complained about. But in 1987, Minnie, uh, who was the wife, she was taking a shower one evening. She steps out of the shower and there's a big puddle of blood on the bathroom floor that wasn't there when she got in the shower. Now, at first, she's, you know, she's alarmed. She thinks that something has happened to her husband, who was quite a bit older. He's in, he was in his uh, 70s, I'd say his late 70s. So she thought maybe something had happened to him. So she calls out for him and he comes around the corner and he's got clean pajamas on and he's in, he's totally fine. And he's like, what, what is it? And there's this big puddle of blood on the floor. And then he's like, wow, I'll be damned. So they go around the house and they find that there's just puddles of blood everywhere. It's just on the floors. It's on the walls. It's underneath the appliances it's like, how could that be? Like, you know what I mean? So, you know, they're checking themselves for wounds and things like that. So they call the police. The police come and all the police can think of is maybe, you know, maybe a wounded animal got in here and sprayed blood all over the place. But, you know, they, they search the place from stem to stern. They can't find anything. And now they really had no idea what to do about this. Um, the police actually closed off. They, they called the house a crime scene for a while because they said that much blood in the house, there's gotta be, there's a body in here. Someone had to come from someplace. So they actually had it closed off as a crime scene for a while, but they could not find anything. Now, interestingly, they had the blood typed and, um, this was 87. So I guess DNA was still in its infancy, but significantly the blood that they found in the house was not the same blood type as the elderly couple who lived there. So they're like, this blood definitely came from a human, but which human it came from, it wasn't anybody that lived there. So we have no idea what, you know, who it was. It was type O blood that they found and both, uh, both the, the couple had a blood. So, what it, the you know, hell? yeah, it was kind of a big deal. It was like <laughs> all the papers and stuff like that. But it's like they never figured out what it was. They could never find anything. They never found a person. They never found. It's just all this blood suddenly appeared in their house, and they just had no idea where it came from. What in the world? <laughs> I know. Can you imagine? Like, I, I thought to myself, I'm like, God, that would be super, super creepy. Like, it, I, I think I would just, I would wet my pants if that happened. <laughs> and, and, and nothing happened before, and nothing has happened since in that house like that. Nope. Just all of a sudden, randomly, just blood everywhere. Who you got. Knows? You got to wonder if it's like a time traveler or something. It's just like 
came through a yeah, portal maybe, or maybe. I just <laughs> Maybe it was some murder leaking over from another dimension or something like that, like in some alternate timeline. Maybe, Maybe that's what it was. The the Atlanta Ripper. Yeah, see, Maybe there you yeah. go. <laughs> you can tell I listen to your podcast. I know, uh, that's great. Well, Pyromania. Yes. Pyromaniac Poltergeist, which this, I can tell you, was probably the most unsettling section of the book to read, in my opinion, because just the thought of things just spontaneously bursting into flame is really not comforting. (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, as creepy as poltergeist activity is, yeah, they could, you know, drop a brick on you. Yeah, they could, you know, flip your bed over. They could do something like that, but they could burn your house down, and they have. I yeah. mean, you know, that's that's bad. Um, you know, it doesn't really get much more destructive than that other than, you know, breaking bones or killing people, which they do also do on occasion. But the, you know, the fire starting ones were were the most destructive by a mile. And interestingly, I think in pretty much God, I want to say 95% of the cases that I wrote about in the book, it was almost always a teenage girl was the focus, Hmm. which I thought was really interesting that it seemed like it was always a girl. It was hardly, it was hardly ever a boy. It was always a girl about the same. And a lot of the girls were adopted, Hmm. you know, in, in, uh, in a handful of the cases, the girls were adopted or, um, you know, were orphans that had been adopted into a particular family. And for some reason, the anguish they were going through was manifesting itself as fire. However, one of the most interesting cases I thought um, that actually had a boy at the center of it was um, it happened in Talladega, Alabama. That's the one I was going to pick. Yeah. 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 Uh, Like this one was really kind of sad. The boy (laughs) only, yeah, he was only nine. So, um, you know, a little young for that kind of thing, but it's kind of sad. It was an African-American family in, in Alabama. And, uh, you know, so they lived kind of in a little bitty house and, you know, there was a bunch of them and stuff. And, you know, it seemed like, it seemed like if the kid was doing this, why would he do that? Because what ended up happening was the original house that the family lived in. Now the houses, the, the fires always started up near the ceiling, which the kid couldn't reach anyway. He was nine. So, you know, they would always start up near the ceiling and the original house that the family lived in, which was just kind of a little, you know, little shack type of house. And it burned to the ground and they ended up having to move in with their relatives. And when they moved in with relatives, the fire started at the relative's house too. And then they got kicked out of there. And then they went to another place and then the fire started there. So it's like, why on earth would anyone fake anything like that? Because, you know, they're essentially homeless because they're going from place to place. Houses are burning down. I mean, at one point, the father of the family got so frustrated, you know, everything in their house was catching fire. He just took whatever was left in their house, piled it out in the yard and set it on fire himself and then just sat there crying because he was like, you know, maybe if there's nothing left to burn, maybe it'll stop. Jeez. 
So, you know, you can imagine the poor man's like frustration. It's like they had a house, everything was fine. Suddenly all these fires are starting, you know, and they had the neighbors were coming over, throwing water on it. And, you know, and then they would just start again someplace else. And I think that case, I believe it's like four houses. I don't know. Like, I don't think all of them burned to the ground, but um, four of them burned enough that no one could live in them. Um, You know, so it was just, that was just a really, really sad situation. And, and so much was um, so much investigation was done on that to see if maybe it was some kind of uh, chemical or something like that. But, you know, because actually one of the, one of the um, cops that saw it happen, he saw a quilt that was actually hanging from a tree. It was drying and uh, it was hanging from a tree out in the yard. And he saw that just spontaneously catch fire. Uh, you know, no one was around it. No one put a match or anything like that. So at first they kind of thought that maybe it was some kind of chemical, but the fact that it happened at so many different houses, like in different towns and stuff like that would seem to uh, make that extremely unlikely. Um, They did find in some of the items that were burned, they found very small traces of uh, phosphorus, which uh, is, you know, was a very volatile chemical. But they said the amount of phosphorus they found, one, wasn't enough to combust. And two, you know, if someone was deliberately starting fires, it's like you can't just walk into a store and buy a phosphorus. You know what I mean? It's not like they they didn't really sell it like to the public or anything because it's so dangerous. So they're like, so it's very unlikely that it could have been faked. But, um, you know, it, it went on for a while. And what ended up happening was the uh, the nine year old kid. They actually, um, he actually confessed that he had started the fires, <laughs> but since this was Alabama in the fifties, um, some people think, you know, he was quote unquote, maybe coerced or something of that nature. And, um, he also said that he'd been starting the, the fires with matches, which a lot of witnesses said, you know, we never saw him with any matches. No one saw him anywhere near where the fire started. So, there, um, it actually ended up when the kid came before a judge, the judge said, there's no way that this kid did that. And, you know, so fair play to the judge. He actually did let the kid go because he didn't think anything. He didn't think the kid had anything to do with it. Right. So, um, you know, eventually the fires did stop, but you know, that was after four houses had burned down and they had, (laughs) they had to move all over the place. So, uh, yeah, that was definitely one of the sadder cases in the book. Cause I, you can imagine that's probably one of the last things you think of. It's like, you know, I'm poor and I just, you know, I live in this, in this little ramshackle town and stuff like that in this little ramshackle house. And all of a sudden starts burning down. I move that one burns down. I move that one burns down. It's like, you know, yeah, and you can't do anything about it. It's not like there's any kind of, you know, rational explanation for why life is suddenly shitting on you in this fashion. You would literally, <laughs> you would literally think that God just hates you. You know, that would be what, that it's, would be your yeah, thought. That's exactly, that's exactly what you would think. Let's, um, <laughs> this is another interesting case and involves a whole entire town. And I remember hearing about this. I remember this making the news. Yes. Uh, Canetto de Cavonia. I think it's in Sicily. Yeah. Yeah. It's an Italian, it's an Italian town. I mean, this is just bizarre. Yeah. And the weird thing about that, and it actually started in 2004, but
But yeah, it's a little uh, town in Sicily on the coast. And it was weird because it's kind of all started spontaneously, but it happened in a bunch of people's houses. And it wasn't like the normal thing that you would think would catch on fire. It wasn't like, oh, newspapers or oily rags or anything like that. It was, at first it was appliances, like people's appliances in many different houses at once about, I think it was about a dozen houses was the first reports. You know, my vacuum cleaner just spontaneously caught fire. My stove spontaneously caught fire. My TV, a bundle of unplugged electrical cables, things like that. And so they, you know, as they would, they're like, well, maybe it's some kind of electrical malfunction. So let's contact, you know, the, uh, the power company for that area. So the power company turned off the power to the whole town and it still did it. So obviously it wasn't anything to do with uh, an electrical problem, at least, you know, not from, not from the power company anyway. So, you know, they had all the, they had all these officials there. The mayor came, there were cops, there were geologists, they were all kind of scientists and stuff like that. You know, they were checking for arson. They were checking everywhere. And, you know, they even had, like, the military in there. No one could come up with anything. And this went on for about a month. Um, and eventually, they they actually um, they actually vacated the town. They had everybody move out. They put them yeah. in the somewhere else, um, you know, while they investigated what might have been going on. They said, maybe it's volcanic activity. They just, they couldn't figure it out. And uh, so... For a month, you know, most of the people, it's, it's not a huge village, obviously, but, you know, for about a month, they had the people, the villagers, like, stay in another place. And eventually, the um, the phenomena kind of petered out, so they told the people they could come back. But a couple months after they came back, the fire started up again. Now, after that, the power company actually upgraded the power grid, you know, seeing if that would make any difference, but it didn't. Uh, same kind of stuff happened. And... It was just, you know, at this point, people were just, maybe it's aliens. Maybe it's a supervillain. Maybe it's, you know what I mean? It's like they couldn't really, like, maybe somebody has, like, a big, huge Tesla type of <laughs> technology that they're using to, like, cause all these fires. Like, because no one could think of any normal, um, you know, explanation. Um, so the fires went on until about, it was August in August of 2004, they stopped. But then about 10 years later in 2014, they started up again. What in the world? Um, yeah. And this time it was like kind of closed, like people's cars would spontaneously catch on fire, things like that. And they evacuated the town again, but they still, you know, they're still going on off and on now. But um, I think the main part, the main portion of it is over, but they still have no idea. Yeah. An entire town. And they still have no idea what could be causing that. I really had to wonder if it's some kind of weapon being tested. It may be. And, the, and some people did, um, did kind of float that possibility because it does seem like, I mean, what else could that be? Yeah. They're, they're like, other than maybe, maybe it's aliens testing a death ray. It's like, who knows? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you never know. Yeah. Um, I've saved the best for last. And that is, um, Jeff, the talking mongoose. This is the cutest story. Like I, in my original, <laughs> in my original outline, 
Um, I actually didn't put this one because I said, well, I don't know if it's really a poltergeist or not. But then I thought, well, it had enough of a poltergeist, uh, enough of a poltergeist similarity that I kind of put it in there because I'm like, this is such a cute story and it's so well known and it's so crazy and weird. But um, so it happened in the 30s. It was in 1931 um, on the Isle of Man. And it's this kind of isolated farmhouse. And um, so this guy and his wife move out to this little farm and they, you know, they have a 12 year old daughter. Her name is Wari. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And uh, they're like, okay, well, he was a salesman and he's like, okay, well, I'm going to be a farmer now. So, well, not to interrupt, but Jeff was spelled G E F. That's even better. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, Evidently, um, you know, the guy, the, the father, his name was, uh, Jim, he wasn't the best farmer. The farm wasn't doing very well. And so they were having some financial problems and stuff like that. Now, at first they start hearing like this scratching and growling, like from behind the wall. So, you know, they think, oh, maybe it's rats or, you know, animals or something like that. So they set out traps and they don't catch anything. So then Jim is like, he just keeps hearing all these noises. So then he starts growling back at it and he's like, and it kind of answers and you know, he'd make bird calls and things like that. And it seemed to be like mimicking him. And he's like, well, huh, that's pretty weird. That's obviously that's not a rat. So then this went on for a couple of weeks and then this thing who actually, uh, Jim and his wife never saw it. Now the daughter said that she saw it. But this thing said from behind the wall, it started talking. It had like a little squeaky voice. And it said that it was an extra clever mongoose. And his name was Jeff. (laughs) And that he had been born in Delhi, India in 1852. And why he was there, who knows. Now... (laughs) I mean, I was thinking mongoose of all things, but apparently they said, okay, well, it's not as weird as it sounds because another farmer that had lived in that area had imported a bunch of mongoose um, to that area before to cut down the rabbit population. Uh-huh. So so it's not totally strange, I guess, that there, because I'd be like, why would mongooses be, or mongoose, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> why would they be running around like in on the Isle of Man, for heaven's sakes, a mongoose of all things. But yeah, they said a, f- a former farmer, like a, a century or two before, had imported a bunch, and maybe some of them had gone feral. But um, so even though they said, okay, now the parents never really saw it. They said they saw little glimpses of it, maybe. But the daughter, she said she saw it. He was he had like kind of yellowish fur. He was about the size of a large rat, and he had a bushy tail. And he apparently lived in a box in her room. Like she kept it up near the ceiling. Like she, I don't know if she ever saw him in there, but she said, well, that's Jeff's box. He lives in there. And one thing that Jeff would do, he would talk all the time. And it was mostly just like a disembodied voice, like coming out of the wall. And he would sing. Um, he would sing dirty limericks because he thought <laughs> because he thought it was very funny, like because the, the mother would get offended. So he thought it was funny that he would sing dirty limericks. Now, what he said he would do, he says that he would go and ride on the back axle of the bus that was going to town, and he would go into town and kind of scoot all around town and listen to all the gossip, and then he would come back on the evening bus 
And he would tell the family while they were eating dinner, like all the stuff that was going on in town, like everything he had learned that day. There's the gossip thing again. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So there's the gossip thing. And evidently he would all, I mean, the family kind of thought it was cool. Like they would leave little snacks out for him, like little biscuits and chocolate and stuff. And apparently they would be gone. And, um, and then sometimes Jeff would bring them things. Like sometimes he would bring them a dead rabbit, like for them to have dinner and things like that. And, uh, one of the funniest things, and this is hilarious. Me and Tom still do this is that when, (laughs) um, when Jeff is done talking, when he was done talking for the day, they said that he would announce vanished and then he would stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) So now like I said, cause I told Tom, I said, Oh my God, now I'm just picturing like a tiny little mongoose, like with a little cape and how he like pulls the cape around himself like a magician. (laughs) So now every time one of our cats like runs out of the room, we're like vanished. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, so evidently Jeff was like, he was mostly friendly. Um, he didn't do anything terribly bad. Um, some poltergeist activity did take place, just minor stuff, like stuff being thrown around with no one throwing it and things like that. Um, he, he would sometimes get kind of pissy and he would, uh, he would call Jim and, uh, Margaret was the mother's name. He would call them names and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, he would kind of throw things and stuff, but, um, so apparently, uh, the media kind of got wind of it and they didn't believe it. Cause you know, ghostly mongoose, come on. So, you know, they wrote, um, a bunch of articles about it that were kind of making fun of the family and uh, so the family got a little bit upset about it because a, a few of the a few of the articles said that the daughter of Wari was just making the whole thing up that she was doing the voice herself. Yeah. So whether she was or not, I don't know. But um, so evidently, some uh, a parapsychologist came out, Harry Price. Um, he came out at one point, and also his uh, colleague came out, and and here's another thing where. Maybe it was a hoax, maybe not. Now, when Harry Price came out, he was given a little bit of fur that the family said, oh, well, this is Jeff's fur. We found it. Now, when they had the fur tested, you know, this was the 30s, so they couldn't do all the DNA analysis. But they said, we're pretty sure it's dog fur, um, not mongoose fur. And um, significantly, the family had a sheepdog. So they thought, well, that could just be dog hair and they did find some footprints but they weren't sure if they were mongoose footprints they said they could have been a raccoon for example so evidently now harry price did end up writing a book about it it was called the haunting of cashin's gap um he kind of didn't know he's like i never heard the the voice um you know all i saw was the fur i heard i had the family stories and stuff like that he's like so i'm not making any judgment over whether it's true or not Um, but many years later, uh, someone who was writing something for a magazine found, uh, the girl of Wari who was grown up, uh, by that point. Cause she was, oh, she was only 12 when the Jeff phenomenon was going on. And she insisted that the whole thing happened just the way she said, she's like that, you know, he was a little ghostly mongoose and he lived behind the wall and he talked to us all the time and sang dirty limericks and whatnot. And she actually said that she wished it hadn't happened because she said, I didn't like all the negative publicity and everyone was really mean to us and stuff like that. Um, so it's, it's kind of a weird, 
it's definitely the weirdest case. And like I said, I'm not sure because there was so much because with the fur and everything like that. And because really they only had the family's story to go on, you know, could it have been a hoax? Of course. Um, but I said, what that, but you know, man, ghostly mongoose, that is so cool. I was like, I really, really, really have to put that in there. And the whole vanish thing. I'm like, that is adorable. That's adorable. I mean, if, if I was going to have a haunting, that's the type of haunting I would want to have just a little mongoose that is behind the wall and he talks and you can leave him chocolate and he'll bring you rabbits to eat and things like that. That's awesome. <laughs> it, it is it really is it's an incredible story yeah. uh, it, it's got a very trickster spirit kind of aspect to it yeah, yeah. And, then, and then you've got to wonder if there maybe is some kind of connection or like an inadvertent um again this whole id thing that maybe someone in the family was manifesting this and like um almost a kind of like um i, I don't know kind of like a the whole like what I, what I described as like the Tulpa thing, you know the yeah the, the the Philip experiment kind of stuff. Whether this was just something that was maybe the whole family just manifested into this thing that lived behind the walls and sang dirty limericks and gossiped all night. <laughs> yeah, I definitely do think if I mean if it happened the way that the witnesses said it did, then I definitely think that's what it was. I mean, obviously, I don't think it was a ghostly talking mongoose, yeah. but. Um, you know, but I definitely think if there was something that it might have been some kind of manifestation of of either the girl's id or, you know, some kind of energy coalescing into that form because of the way the family was, you know, who knows. But but yeah. sir, but certainly the weirdest, the weirdest manifestation in all the book. <laughs> he was considered the eighth wonder of the world, apparently. Yeah, that's did, right. Did anybody try to record the voice or was it just like at did the what? time? Did anybody try to record the voice? Nope. Nope. Maybe That's the technology that wasn't there. Suspicious. Like a yeah. lot of these, a lot of these cases that make me kind of suspicious. Yeah. It's yeah. like, wouldn't you record, you know, wouldn't you try to record it? I mean, I can say if, yeah, we tried to record it and it didn't come out or something like that, you know, but that still sounds a little too convenient, but at least right. try to, I mean, that's what I would try to do. Right. Right. There apparently is several quotes that are, um, I might read some of those in the outro. <laughs> but <laughs> Jenny, thank you so much. What's uh what's next for you? What are you working on now? And um uh what, what can we expect a new book? And tell everybody about uh your podcast. Okay. So let's do that first. Yeah. Um myself and Tom Ross, who is, was my co-author on the Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist, we have a weekly podcast called 13 o'clock. It comes out every Tuesday. And we do paranormal topics, true crime topics, weird historical topics, like strange missing persons, cases, all that kind of stuff. We just, we've done Scientology. We've done uh, occult Nazis. We've done, it's all over the map. So uh, if you're into kind of weird esoterica type of thing and you just want to hear a couple of smart asses um, bullshitting about it for an hour, (laughs) then this is the show for you. Um, Also, another thing I'm working on too is um, I'm doing a sort of similar theme channel, but more of like a shorter list type thing. Uh, It's going to be called 13 o'clock in minutes and it's going to have just similar content, but the videos are only going to be like five to 10 minutes long. So it'll, it'll be done like a list thing, like, you know, creepiest serial killers and that kind of thing. So, uh, that'll be up in probably a few weeks or maybe a month whenever I get it done. And, uh, the next book I'm working on is actually a true crime book. 
Um, and it's going to be volume one of a three volume series. And it's actually called The Faceless Villain. And it's all about the creepiest unsolved murders of the 20th century. Um, and this is another case where initially it was only going to be one volume, but the more research I did and the more cases I found, I said, well, I'm going to have to break this down into three volumes. Otherwise, this thing is going to be as big as War and Peace uh, because there are so many, so many like creepy unsolved murders. And like I said, I'm just confining it to the 20th century. So volume one is actually from 1900 to 1960. And that should be out before October, fingers crossed. Um, not sure. Uh, and then probably volume two will be out early next year sometime, probably spring. But uh, that so that'll be the next big book project is a true crime book because I've been wanting to write one for ages. Absolutely. And I would love to have you come on and talk about that. That's something that we haven't really covered too much on our show is true crime. I'd love to get into a little bit of that. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. Um, stay on the line for us. We're going to close this section out. And guys, we will be back with Jeff the Talking Mongoose on Conspiranormal. <laughs> some quotes from Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Just thought I would throw those in. Awesome. You know what it kind of reminds me of? Um, there was this thing in one of H.P. Lovecraft's stories about this weird little rat with like the face of a woman. I don't know That's why. frightening. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> That's what keeps coming to mind though. It's something living in the walls or in a box that no one can see but like, talking to people. And, ugh. Yeah, that's yeah. It, it, that's a weird one, man. I don't know what to think about that one. I don't know if that one falls into poltergeist or not. What did you think about that interview, Rob? Oh, it was great. You I really lo- like the ghost stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then, I mean, you know, I love Jenny. She's always great. And, oh yeah. Um, it seems like it's such a, a a comprehensive view of the subject. You know, mm-hmm. well, you hear so much about like two or three specific cases most of the time. Um. It's kind of cool to hear, you know, the branching out and little, little sort of like even like that one. It's kind of it's got some poltergeisty stuff to it, but right. you know, maybe it's just all part of something broader. Yeah, yeah, I, I really like her perspective on things. It's really, mm. really, really interesting, and it, and I can't uh, recommend her podcast, her and Thomas podcast enough. Um, Thirteen o'clock podcast. Um, they just 
they they will take a topic and they will just fly with it for about an hour. And I really love the give and take between her and Tom. Tom is like one of the most ADD guys. And you can hear like, you know, like it's a certain ambiance because you can, through most episodes, you can hear Tom and his, uh, his vape, his vape the whole time. So it's pretty cool. Um, guys, um, we are getting ready to go to Roswell. We will be there soon. We're recording this on June 25th and Rob and I are going to be heading out to, Roswell, New Mexico, in a couple of days, probably in less than 48 hours. And um, we would love to, if anybody's listening to this, we'd love to see you there. So please come out. Again, it's the um, challenges to the ET extraterrestrial hypothesis. And uh, we, we'd love to see you. And uh, Luke, what'd you think about all that? And oh, man, he's still not oh, here. Oh, dude, man, bro. We, we still need to do that Luke soundboard. Oh, I know. We're going to. We need to re, we need just we we got enough material. We could either A record him or B just like pull it from from old episodes. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It, it, like you like it could be a game of like are we do we actually have Luke or are we using the Luke soundboard? Or just even like once a week whenever he has free time, he can just leave a voicemail, a voice right. message for me of some crazy random story. And then we'll just Inserted into the yeah, show. Inserted in there. I think that'd be great. Or we or we could just like, you know, like stories from Luke maybe once a month. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hey guys, I'm here. What's up? So all right, guys. Um been a marathon show, been a marathon evening for us because we recorded tonight also the next show. And uh the next one, I'm still saying the guest is a surprise. But uh, I would think about uh, ancient civilizations and um, ice ages and comets. If you can figure it out, then I don't know. Maybe you can get a brownie from us or something. I'll hook you guys up. Um, so that will be next week. Well, we will still probably be at that point coming back from Roswell. Uh, I don't know if we're going to post that after we get back or maybe post it in the hotel room, whatever we're going to do. Um, and you may actually hear um, a little bit of us actually in roswell at that point uh so guys thanks for listening and we will be back next time on conspiranormal you got brownies dude
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.